Hello everyone and a very warm welcome back to Footprints. This episode is all about farming. In fact, it's all about one farm. And we're going to hear from four generations of people connected with the farm since its beginnings 105 years ago. We start by meeting three women, including Rachel, whose family farmed it for 50 years, and current farmer Jane, who's been there with her family for the last 23. But first, let's begin our story with Marianne Brunt, whose grandparents bought the farm in 1917. It's called Manor Farm Langridge. Marianne was born in 1936, and she lived with her parents at Tadwick Farm, just across the valley. And she remembers going to Manor Farm as a very young child. So what we're looking at is the lot, the sale. The sale of the Ashcombe estate, estate, which includes lot four, Manor Farm, 1917. This is when your grandparents bought the farm. Must have been when they got married. So that's over 100 years ago. Thank you. (laughs) 100 years, my goodness. So Manor Farm, how big was it in your day, Marianne? I think it was just sort of just under uh, 60 acres, round about there, I think, which in those days was considered quite a, a nice little farm. Well, I suppose with everything, it was quite a hard-working farm. And I think my grandfather was very handy with making things. He had a very nice workroom which you didn't dare go in because if you moved a spanner, it was terrible. (laughs) So he did make lots of things, I think, and he was very proud of what he did do. But um, I think that's my mother. Yes, it is. This is a tractor, look. Oh, good gracious, I don't remember that one. Grandpa, Grandma, my father and my auntie, I think, is there. And these are the two that farmed the land when you were little? Yes, they ran the farm. And that was their cows, wasn't it? The plan was for Marianne's parents to take over the farm. But very sadly, Marianne's father, Harry Pickford, was killed on Charmy Down at the beginning of World War II. This left three widows, his wife, his mother and his sister, to look after the farm themselves. And they managed it for a couple of years before letting it to the Griffin family in around 1941. Private H.C. Pickford, Somerset Home Guard. That was my father. Mm. That's your father, held in honour as one who served king and country in the World War of 39-45 and gave his life to save mankind from tyranny. May his sacrifice help to bring the peace and freedom for which he died. Would he be in there? He's here. He's there. That's him. Oh, Oh, that's your father. Hmm. So this book is The Somerset Home Guard, Hmm. a pictorial roll call by Geoffrey Wilson. And there you have both your fathers on the same page. Hmm. Yes. Let's hear from Rachel de Fossard, the Griffin family's daughter, about her memories of the farm. Well, I've said it was a a mixed farm, so a little of lots of things, including a dairy herd which was very small, about 20 cows. Father was, in my earliest memory, milked them by hand, sitting on the three-legged stool. (laughs) (laughs) The milk went off in uh, milk churns, 
and it had to be taken to the bottom of that steep, steep hill each day to be collected. But, sad to say, when I was nine, the foot and mouth visited. So again, all the animals, uh, cloven hoof animals, had to be killed and killed on the farm, buried in a lime pit. And it was hugely sad. We had about eight farm cats, wild cats, and they should have been slaughtered, but my brother kept them all in his bedroom, which was dreadful foul. <laughs> all eight wild cats yes, in his bedroom. feral cats in his bedroom. Of course, we couldn't go to school. My parents couldn't leave the farm. There was a policeman in a sentry box at the bottom of the hill, and there was straw soaked in disinfectant. If anybody passed, they had to disinfect their boots to come and go, but very few people did. And we relied largely on neighbours' donations of food to keep us going which was very exciting because it was things we didn't normally have, like tinned chocolate pudding and tinned rice pudding. And, <laughs> and you were nine, so this White was an excitement. And yes, yes. And the ministry vets had to stay on the farm to oversee the dispatching of the animals. So my poor mother, I don't know how she managed. She had ministry vets living there and couldn't go to shop. So I don't know how we survived. And that was for six weeks we had to be like that. Six weeks? Gosh, that's amazing. Then after the animals had gone, we had teams of out-of-work men come to whitewash all the buildings and clean them and disinfect everywhere. But in a way, it was the making of my father because he got really well compensated. My mother bought herself a fur coat. (laughs) (laughs) And my father set himself up with a pedigree herd of Frisians called the West Point Herd. And I think for him, life got easier Mm. and more productive after that. Now, horses, of course, were used routinely when Marianne's grandparents bought the farm. And we'll hear later how a herd of shire horses are used now. But I wondered what kind of machinery was brought to the farm in between. So, who had the first tractor? Oh, I think my father always had a tractor. In my memory, he didn't use a horse But I do remember his tractor breaking down and he borrowed a horse from a neighbour. So he he knew how to use a horse. (laughs) Um, Did you have any mechanisation when when your grandparents were there or were they purely using horses? Uh, I think he was the first person in the area to build, I think they called it a thrashing machine uh, for the corn and also an elevator, which he made it all out of wood and what belts and things, and I can just remember seeing that. And then in the winter, I think it would have been the winter, the thrashing drum, which was a steam affair, 
would come up to the farm and thrash the corn. And then there would be left the straw and, and, and the sacks of corn. So Marianne and Rachel, when did you last see each other? Oh, <laughs> well, I would think it's well over 60 years. Mm, I would agree with that. I well. do remember, Marion, that we were invited over. I must have been quite a little girl. When you got married, and I think your mother must have had a little do for the neighbours, and we were invited to see your wedding presents. Oh, really? And among these wedding presents was a picture of a present because it was far too big to be there, and that was a baler. And I do remember, you know, that cause of fancy that. Oh, they got a baler for a wedding present. Quite a thing. Mm. And in 1978, the farm changed ownership when the Griffin family bought the farm outright. Did he make any major changes then? No, he wasn't somebody to make any major changes. <laughs> he lived very frugally, would prefer not to spend money on anything at all. I think it was a very, very harsh place to live with, um, you know, no heating. The room they chose as the kitchen had no water in it, so the water was got then from the well. There was then a confusing discussion about the ram. No, not a male sheep, but instead an ingenious piece of kit requiring no electricity and simply using the power of flowing water. It was, uh, wasn't it my grandfather that piped the water from those rams into the house? Yes, probably. I think it was <clears throat> then that he, he did... Um, was quite a big job for him, you know, to do, but he did get water there. So your grandfather brought water to the house. What about electricity? No, I think <laughs> I think the valley, and I'm not sure about Manor Farm, but I know Tadwick has a, a 15 houses. The year I got married um, was in the 50s, and that was the year when they got electricity. Wow, 50s. Rachel, do you remember that? Yes, I do. Again, and most things happened when I was nine. I don't know whether I, <laughs> whether I remember it correctly, but yes, I remember tilly lamps and candles and father milking on the three-legged stool with the light of a tilly lamp. Then we gradually progressed to a generator, mm. which was wonderful because it was better for the generator if all the lights in the house were kept on. And then he, of course, moved to milking the cows with the mechanism rather than by hand. And then, yes, I guess it may have followed on from foot and mouth, but we had the um, electricity, which was fantastic. But Marion said about the water, indeed there was water, that fed a big tank... Mm. In the dairy, it was a big thing. If you heard the tank bump, 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 tell father the tank is bumping, <laughs> that meant that the ram needed attention. And it was never convenient. It was no. always the worst thing. The story moves on. Rachel's brother had been gearing up to take over the running of the farm. But in 1994, 
he tragically died. So father carried on letting out his land. They carried on there till father died in 98 and then mother sold up to Donald and Jane. And how old was your father then? He was 92 when he died. No, 93 when he died. So he farmed that farm till he was 93? Well, he didn't do much physically in his 90s, but yes, he still had a finger on the pulse, yes. (laughs) That takes us up to 1999, and that's where, Jane, you and Donald come in. Yes, yes. Uh, The 10th of the 9th, 99, we took possession of the farm feeling extremely lucky and privileged actually because I think a lot of people had wanted it and Rachel and her family we were the only people that were going to farm it so Rachel and the family sold it to us and we moved in there tractors and trailers with all our kit and kids and had a big party in the kitchen that night using the gramophone that's still there and the 78s that were still there dancing to them big celebration it was fabulous so any other big changes jane since you took over uh well i think it will as rachel said would have been very very harsh when rachel and her family lived there i mean there was no no felt on the roof just tiles the snow just used to come through didn't it and pile up in the bedroom the snow came through and piled up in the bedroom <laughs> uh, the first winter we were there, we got snowed up. So the only way out was in the tractor. We used to have to go down to Lark Hall to the supermarket, which was great, in the tractor. Ice on the insides of the windows all the way. And we still get that, even now, with a much better heating system. And I think you just had a, from my memory, there was just a paraffin stove in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. That was it upstairs, wasn't it? No heating. Very harsh. And we've gradually, over the years, we re-roofed it and felted and insulated. And we've put two Rayburns. So we've got Rayburn in the kitchen. We had the original one until very recently. And we realised all the fire bricks had fallen out. And I had, sometimes I had to cook things with the oven door open because um, it would get so hot or, or they'd take all night to cook or whatever. And then we've got another Rayburn, which we put in the big sort of living room. And that heats our water and does some radiators upstairs. I mean, it's still not a super comfy house, but it's way more comfy, I think, than when Rachel and Vera and John lived there. But they lived to a great age, so it didn't do them any they harm, did. did it? Mother was 92, <laughs> father was 93, so no, it didn't Absolutely. do them any harm. Oh, thank you so much. That's what a pleasure it's been to sit in your kitchen, Marianne, and hear from you, Rachel and Jane, about the three generations of farmers, farming man and farm. And we're going to go over to the farm this afternoon with you, Jane, and meet Donald and Laurie and find out more and see the farm. That will be lovely. And thank you very much for inviting us to do this because it has been lovely to go back. And, and especially to see Richard, yes, you know, amazing, all these really. years, it's it's amazing, isn't it? It's been so so interesting hearing these two talk, and I think you need to get you together over mm. at the farm. Actually, it'd be really yes. lovely, wouldn't it? It would be nice. Yeah. Time now to head over to the farm itself. <laughs> Here we are at the farm and the dogs are here to greet us. Hello. Keep up. 
coming into the heart of the house now. Hello. Oh, here we are in the beautiful house that you said Tommy was 16th century. This is the lintel that's the mantelpiece and the raven. And Donald, and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Good afternoon, hello. What would you most no, like to have everybody know about this farm? Well, it's it's a traditional mixed small farm, and we've done very little to change things since we moved in 22 years ago. This farm's probably been here for 500 years at least. So the records go back for about 500 years. And in that time, things have changed a lot. The farm hasn't changed. The fields are still the same. The layout is very much the same. But the way the land is worked has changed. So there's not so many people. There's more machines. And the cropping has changed. There are not so many mixed farms anymore. So this farm produced dairy. It produced crops wheat, probably barley. It produced livestock for meat. The evidence we have here is that there was a piggery. There were probably all sorts of other things, you know, farm produce here. And then the garden, the vegetable garden. And it was self-sufficient in water. And up until maybe 80 years ago, it didn't have electricity. And the woodland produced the fuel for heating. And there's plenty of existing pollard ash in the fields, in field and in the hedgerows. They were useful for providing winter fuel when they were pollarded. The pollards were above browse height, above about eight feet. That's my phone. <laughs> That's one thing that's changed. Pollard ash are an interesting relic of the past because the branches were dropped in the fields as fodder for livestock. And then in the winter, the branches were collected up as fuel. So the pollards were very long-lived, 100, 200 years old. And every year they provided fodder and firewood. So this farm here is a small mixed farm. When we moved here, 68 acres, and that was enough to support the families that have lived here in the past, but probably not enough acres these days to support a family. So we've, we've added to it with 120 acres for a next door farm. Uh, the farms in this community, uh, in the time we've been here, have reduced from, um, I think, six to two. So we've lost four farms. And in that process, the land is amalgamated amongst the surviving farms. And the farm steadings are developed for residential use. So the farms are dying at a rapid rate and becoming larger and... Um, changing the way they're farmed is changing farming at the moment is in turmoil and the future is very uncertain is likely to be a continued concentration of production on the more productive land and more abandonment of the less productive land so around bath is not very easy land to farm so farming will probably continue to shift away from this area. 
there's more woodland now than there was in the recent past, 100 years ago, uh, because of abandonment. And I think that will continue. And farming will concentrate more on the better, easy-worked land. Uh, so, so there will be a change in rural communities, an ongoing change. I think that's going to happen in the future. Change is usually bad. <laughs> Any change is bad, and it's usually too fast. So change is bad for some people. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for the heritage. I like to see change slow down a bit. There's been rapid change in farming in the last 80 years since the last war. And it's been too fast. Communities have suffered, farms have suffered. As I said, we've lost four of our farms in this small community in the last 20 years. And you can only lose a farm once. And uh, many of the traditional buildings are being converted to residential. You can only do that once. Once they're gone, they're gone. And what we have left are, is the land. And uh, that's... That's changing. As I say, there's more of a concentration on the productive land and the, uh, the more difficult land will wild up a bit. It's not necessarily a bad thing for the environment, but certainly the loss of our heritage is unwelcome. The subsidies have been supporting farmers for the last... Mm, they've grown since the last war and uh, they've been very generous effectively income support for landowners they're going and as a result there will be more wilding there'll be more abandonment there'll be a change of ownership there is turmoil about to happen in the structure of agriculture at the moment because those income support subsidies will be replaced by something, and the government's talking about replacing them entirely with environmental payments, which is different. That means that the subsidies will go to the poor land that can deliver environmental benefits, like the uplands and the more difficult farmland, which is rich in biodiversity and providing ecosystem services and tourism and such like. And it will move away from the productive farmland. There will be less support for good, level, productive ground. So those farms will be more commercial in nature. There'll be more pressure for those farms to increase income from yield. And so that will give rise to a lot of change. But as I say, it's in turmoil at the moment. We don't know exactly where... We're going to end up. Most people didn't know that farmers or landowners were so richly rewarded with income support with no strings attached. And that was a benefit of being in the EU. Farmers voted en masse for Brexit, but in doing so, they voted away their rights to the income support that the EU was giving to farmers. Farmers don't like paperwork. And um, if you have, if you're given support or grant aid or whatever, then there's an awful lot of form filling involved and uh, oversight of how you farm. Uh, farmers like to be left alone without too much paperwork. They do not like being told what to do. So they perceived uh, the EU as being too authoritarian and too much red tape.
this farm is is safe in our hands and probably my my children's hands too so it will continue to exist it's as you've probably been told we're not ordinary farmers so we're not producing food we're producing environmental products and i think there's a, a strong future for that and we're certainly finding at the moment that uh, the level of interest and the the need within the uk for environmental services is quite strong we produce seeds which are used for restoring nature so agriculture under the subsidies Uh, systems that existed in the last 80 years has done great harm to the environment. Wildlife has suffered, biodiversity has declined, uh, we have pollution in our rivers, in our soils and the air and agriculture, modern agriculture, uncontrolled has been largely to blame for that. We're providing some of the tools that are needed to restore degraded land back to nature so that it produces clean air, water, good environment, um, and it's good for nature and good for biodiversity. After talking to Donald, Jane took me off to see the well, the old kitchen and the workshop. Look at that. The pump's not working, unfortunately, but we we now feed the kitchen off the um, spring, off the ram and the spring. deep that's so deep <laughs> and this is well is inside the house <laughs> donald's actually been down it in his wetsuit once mm. have you mm. <laughs> how did you get down there did you abseil down yeah. a ladder yeah. oh my look at this this is the old kitchen oh two coppers a bread oven and a hanging pot this was the workshop that she said she wasn't allowed into because into Grandpa's workshop. Grandpa's workshop. And this, we think, probably the oldest bit. This is the bit that Rachel said was in the um, mentioned in the Doomsday Book. Those beams look very old, don't they? And the floor is sort of cobbled. Mm. Oh. And that lathe is uh, apparently was used to make shell cases for Spitfire planes. Gosh, it's extraordinary that it's all still here to be seen. Before heading outside to see the farm and meet the Shire horses, I took the opportunity to chat to Laurie, the fourth generation, who will take Manor Farm into the future. So we've met Marianne, Rachel and your parents, and now here you are. You're working on this farm now? I am, yeah. So tell me what you get up to here bit of everything really tractor work I also getting involved in cropping horses we've got a big herd of shires I'm sure you've heard a lot about um, but also I'm quite office based so I don't spend as much time on the farm now as I would like but in the summer it gets a bit busier so I get to be on the farm more then and of course you didn't start life here but you must have been quite young when your parents moved here yes I think maybe about eight or nine and me and my sister had ponies and we were very lucky so we just used to spend all our time riding around the farm going up onto Lansdowne there's um the woods on Lansdowne they have lots of fallen trees we call it the jumping woods so we spent a lot of our time (laughs) jumping over the fallen trees in the woods on our ponies it's all very idyllic 
before the um, the road at the top uh, on Lansdowne wasn't too busy to cross. So when did you start thinking, maybe I'd like to work on this farm? Me and my sisters have always been involved in the seed picking and things. So from a young age, we always sort of helped out in the summer, especially primrose picking. We'd um, have a big team of us and we still do it now. And then when I really started getting into it as I did a degree in conservation biology and then after that I was going to go into uh, ecological consultancy and I thought actually I'll just go into the family business instead because it's quite linked up with that sort of thing and started off doing more field-based work to learn practically about the cropping and things and then now I'm a little bit more office-based but I hope to be 50-50 eventually. It sounds like it's not very mechanised in terms of the collection of seeds, is that right? Lots of the seed is hand-collected from the wild and then we propagate it. And the machinery we do have is quite old-fashioned, So because there's very narrow rows compared to conventional farming. We've got very old, maybe 40-year-old combines. The newest things we have are the tractors. But yeah, lots of the species can't be combined, they have to be hand-collected. But the grasses, most of those you can combine. But even with the combining, it's not straightforward because you have to tweak the the machinery in order for it to work for the seeds. (laughs) So when are your real busy times of year? So on the farm, probably is harvesting from June and July are probably the most peak peak busy times. And that's when we've got all the seed outs um, on the front uh, fields and it's all drying and then we've got to work with the windows with the weather so we're sort of if there's any rain we have to run out put the uh, poly sheets back over the seed we haven't got much drying space in way of barns so it's mostly done outside and then uh, with regards to the business as a whole um, our very busy time is now for everyone's sort of wanting seed for spring sowing and in the autumn so september october time Well, thank you so much for talking about the farm. I'm going to go out and see it and um, get a flavour of it and meet the Shires. Oh, yes, they're very friendly. (laughs) They're gentle giants, yeah. Do you ever ride them? We do, yes, yeah. I was more into normal horses, but um, Jane used to do dressage on one of the Shires, so, yeah, she was very brave. It was a stallion. (laughs) But I've never done more than plodding around the lanes on the Shires, so... But they are very lovely, lovely riding horses. Bit slow for me, though. Thank you so much, Laurie. Thank you. So... So, shall we head outside and have a a look? That is Tadwick Farm, where Marianne was brought up. Yeah, so she didn't have far to walk over to see her grandparents. No, she, that's what she said he used to... Her dad, when he was working here, he used to piggyback her up back up the field. She'd walk down the brook to meet him. And for a year after he died, she would be looking out, watching out of the window for him to come and... Because no-one told her that he died, that's know, what she said. She said nobody... She didn't know he died. That's a mighty log store you have over there. Yes. That's got to see us through till next winter. The one that we cook on, we keep that going all through the summer. You cook on wood? Yeah, yeah. Cook and heat the house with wood. And where does the wood come from? On the farm, pollarded ashes, any hedging we do, dead elms, any trees that blow down. My gosh, that's incredible to cook and heat on wood. 
So are these fields behind, are they where the flowers grow? Yes. So the arable fields are above the farm. Uh, so you could bring the, the straw and the wheat downhill, easy work. And the grass fields for grazing are below the farm. And then, of course, the cows, they have to do the work to get up to be milk and ah, fed. I yeah. see. And so what flowers do you grow? What's uh, the wild, most popular? Wild, wild species. And most popular things like cowslip and knapweed. And <laughs> mostly grassland species, but woodland as well. Uh, um, I mean, the grassland species that your people will be familiar with, like cowslip and uh, knapweed, you know, moon daisy, and then woodland species, bluebell, primrose. Yes. And who do you mostly sell to? The market's divided up. About a third of it is agri-environment, so restoration of farmland, and then another third is landscaping, uh, roadsides and uh, etc and then the third is directly related to conservation work so expansion or repair of nature reserves so the objective is to recreate the, the species rich uh, grasslands mainly mainly grasslands uh, that have been lost as a result of agricultural intensification <laughs> let's go and see if we can find the shires can see evidence of shires all over the land. Their hoof prints are enormous. Oh, I spy one. We've got 17 shire horses altogether. And these, uh, the stallion, we've got one stallion. His name is Bo, and he's with a mare, a black mare, Portilla. Portilla. Portillo. <laughs> No, Portella. <laughs> Sorry, Portillo. Portillo. <laughs> Bo and Portella. As people know, these were the power source on the farm before the tractor. Yes. We keep them to manage the grassland. And uh, Hello, boy. Yes, they do like their extra strong mints. Really? And um, you'll probably hear the crunch. Both of them eating extra strong ones. Yes, this is just hilarious. Donald's giving them the whole packet. <laughs> They're mighty beasts, aren't they? The stallion we were with is called Sandybank Bow. You can look him up online, as he's famous. He won the RSPCA Hero Animal of the Year Award in 2018. Why, I wondered. Because he he rescued his uh, one of the mares, his his wife, his lady friend, who was stuck in one of these stables with very bad colic, and we spent hours and hours trying to lift her up and turn her over with bits of machinery, and she was very near. Uh, we'd given up really, and she was going to have to be put down, and. Bo, who'd been sort of standing in the next door stable most of the day, we let him out for a little wander in the yard. And instead of coming out into the yard, he leant over the stable partition and lifted her up, got hold of her neck and pulled her up onto her feet. Wow. Yes, and uh, we then managed to, en to encourage her a bit more, get her up, and we literally saved her life. Of course, that's um, extraordinary that he knew what to do. Just, yeah. So there, are, there is a little 
little video. He had lots of, you know, it was went a bit viral. <laughs> this little video of him rescuing her, and then we ended up having to go up to London to pick up an award for him, which we'll show you. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to have met Bo, the award-winning Shire horse. Um, vegetable garden. We're still quite self-sufficient in fruit and veg, so we've you know replanted the orchard. We've got lots. Oh, of, it's a big orchard, isn't of, it? Yeah, lots of apples and it's lovely, and you get a real good, good good view of the whole house from here. Yeah. Yes. So Did you uh, just fall in love with it when you came to see it? Oh, we were just incredibly lucky, weren't we? We were. We were it's very difficult to buy a farm, you know, because we, we were looking out for somewhere and it came up and we just went for it. Yeah, the competition wanted to carve it up into <laughs> various bits and make profit from it, but we wanted to farm it, so. It was meant to be, wasn't it? Isn't this where you grew up? Or? Oh, very close to it, very close to it, just the other side of the valley. I grew up there. It's extraordinary that you found this farm at the right time just when you needed it. Thank you so much, both of you, for, for showing me around. It's been a pleasure. It's been really lovely to share it. And thank you for visiting us and showing an interest. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me and you can find out more about Bathscape by visiting bathscape.co.uk. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pomihama, and I hope to see you next month when we'll be talking trees. <laughs>